Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. This week, I'm joined by entrepreneur and Paxful CEO, Ray Youssef. Our conversation was recorded before the FTX collapse, but I'm not sure you'll find a discussion more appropriate for the current state of crypto. If you don't know him, Ray is a crypto OG and has spent years teaching people how to use Bitcoin in order to gain access to financial opportunity. He also founded Built With Bitcoin, which is a humanitarian organization devoted to creating equitable opportunity by providing clean water, access to quality education, sustainable farming, and humanitarian support. The work that Ray and Built With Bitcoin are doing is exactly why it's worth staying in this industry right now. Ray believes financial freedom is a basic human right, and if he's successful, he can unite and improve the lives of over a billion people across the global south. Speaking of the FTX collapse, if you're looking for more on that situation, then after the show, head over to the Chainalysis blog or our Twitter account for the latest. The links are in the show notes. Today, I am joined by the CEO and founder of Paxful, Ray Youssef. Ray, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, brother. Great to be here. This is a conversation I'm looking forward to. At Chainalysis, we've been doing a lot of research lately about grassroots adoption of cryptocurrency all around the world. And I think I definitely could not find anybody who's closer to the grassroots usage, adoption, education of crypto than you. Looking at your Twitter profile, I think you've been out there on the ground for many years in this space. Super excited to chat with you about that topic and the other things that that your company and some of the organizations you support have been working on too, because I think it's some really important work. Thank you, brother. It is important work, quite important. The most important, you might say. Absolutely. Well, hey, I always love to understand how people got into crypto. You've been in this for a long time. I was chuckling a little bit looking at your LinkedIn profile, where you call out a period of time covering 11 failed startups and many lessons learned. Can you talk a bit about your journey into crypto, how you came to to found Paxful, maybe to start the conversation? Let me start it from the beginning. So I'm an immigrant, first-generation immigrant from uh, from Africa, from Egypt. My parents came to New York when I was two years old. My parents were school teachers, and uh, you know my father had a PhD in science, and he came to America, washed dishes, but you know they made a lot of sacrifices for us. I grew up in Hell's Kitchen, running a newsstand with my parents. I learned how to hustle, do business. It was quite the education, especially growing up in New York in the '80s and '90s. It was you know middle of the crack epidemic. It was. Like the place for a young man to grow up. I learned a lot of valuable lessons in business. I learned how to do business from my mother. And I got my first computer when I was 19. I was in City College. You know, I'm just a normal guy. I didn't go to Ivy League or anything like that. I don't have any student debt either. <laughs> There's some advantages, <laughs> right? I got my first computer when I was 19. I taught myself how to code, started building websites. And I started my first business. It was like I was trying to group on with SMS when Americans didn't know what it was. So uh, I had to pivot. And I pivoted to ringtones, which is peer-to-peer ringtones. People upload a ringtone and then people can download it. And uh, I built the whole thing myself, turned into a multi-million dollar business very quickly. Then I started another startup, a social networking startup, when Friendster was battling MySpace and Facebook was just a project in a dorm. And uh, we were the first to do virtual gifts. We had that news feed first. We got on Wired Magazine and national TV and all of that. So, you know, I was, I'm was i a total nerd. I can do things from scratch. I know how to build things myself. I'm an engineer. Those were two huge projects I was taking on at the same time. 
But I won't get into things. I will say, though, that I was completely burnt out after all of that. I bought my mother a brownstone in New York with all the money I made. I didn't take any VC funding, by the way. It was all bootstrapped. And then I just wanted to escape. I wanted to get away from the world. Imagine dealing with the music labels right when Napster went down. People are afraid of, you know, the regulators and crypto now. People are more afraid of the music companies. Absolutely. So I just wanted to get away. I couldn't, you know, I was like 24 years old and, and... dealing with lawyers constantly. It was So I was completely burnt out. And I, I just said, hey, I'm going to travel the world and, and do boxing and MMA. <laughs> That's what I started to do. Strong, do strong career pivot right there. Going yeah. from tech startups to MMA. I like it. Yeah, I, I did a hell of a pivot. <laughs> Traveled the world as this wandering gypsy martial artist and uh, had quite a few experiences and quite a few fights, learned a lot. And I really didn't want to change my trajectory. I was kind of happy like that, living very humbly and modestly and you know, living in Asia, especially and praying and going to temples, <laughs> being in nature and training my body and mind. It was nice. But then something happened. My mother, uh, she got a divorce, which was actually a good thing. But unfortunately, she lost the house I bought her. So I was like, oh, all right, I got to buy my mother another house. I got to, you know, oh my God, I'm not going to make money. So I go back and I had a big head. I was like, yeah, I did two successful startups before, bootstrap, I could build the whole thing myself. Man, I'm going to rock it again. It's quite arrogant. And God is a way of humbling us when we're arrogant. And I certainly was humbled. And I did, you know, one peer-to-peer startup after the other, file sharing, tried music again, you know, just kept smashing. I did a health site, I did a science blog. I, I just did, I was just going one after the other. And a lot of them actually did make money, but it wasn't enough to buy my mother like a palace, which I wanted to buy her. And it certainly wasn't enough to make an impact in the world. So once I saw, okay, this is not going to do it, I just switched that off, went to something else. I was always looking for a huge win, you know, to change the world and buy my mother house. I discovered Bitcoin um, in 2013 and I, I did a startup, which was like a retail merchant POS. It didn't really work. And I didn't know what to do. I run through all my savings. You can imagine all that time. I burned through every penny I had. And I came to the point where I didn't know what to do next. Think about 11 failed startups. You got to be, it's kind of a mental illness to keep going <laughs> at that point, right? But we're very driven. I can't, I'm actually unhirable. I don't think I could ever work. <laughs> Reason, right? No one's going to hire me. At that point, homeless, actually. <laughs> I was like, I had oh my gosh. three months in New York and it was coming into winter and it was freaking me out. And, you know, there were nights where I was literally on the street, right? And, and just foraging and whatnot. I had a, a religious, like a spiritual awakening. So I, I got to the point where I actually had to beg God for help. And I certainly got that help. I started on the path to Bitcoin and Paxful for real. Because, you know, my first Bitcoin startup showed me that there's not enough Bitcoin in circulation for people to actually use it, right? And the people we're trying to aim it at, people in the West, don't really need it. The sale there is, hey, buy some of this, hold on to it, you're going to get rich, bro. You're going to get a Lambo, bro. That's, you know, is that really what Bitcoin was created to be just another asset class for the rich to pile it on? I mean, I was attracted to Bitcoin in the beginning because for me, it was very attractive as a solution to a problem. And the problem was always the same. It was always billing. And every startup I had, you build a beautiful website, a great system, but then you have to bill people. And all you have is Visa and MasterCard. But most of my startups, I focused on unbanked peoples. Like my first startup, this ringtone startup, these were like 14-year-old kids trying to get a Mission Impossible ringtone. They had to swipe their mother's credit card. Now I get all these chargebacks. How do I get these unbanked people to pay me? So billing was always an issue. That's what attracted me to Bitcoin. But I believed it could do a lot more. I believed it was 
not just an asset class for rich kids to play with. I believe there was a tool created to enable commerce, free trade for the people that need it most. And at the time, I had an inkling of this idea. It's something I call economic apartheid. It's actually the biggest problem in the world. I didn't have enough knowledge at that point to truly understand how big the problem was, how pervasive it was, but I was on the right track. And I started Paxful because I realized, hey, we need to get more Bitcoin into the hands of people that need it most, particularly the unbanked. And I said, okay, what can do that? Well, a peer-to-peer -peer marketplace makes sense. That way people can trade anything for Bitcoin, their time, a service, a good, a gift card, right, which you can buy with cash, right? This is the way to get Bitcoin into the hands of people, especially people in the global south. The global south, I mean... Africa, Latin America, Southeast Asia, India, etc., some parts of Eastern Europe. It was they suffered the most from economic apartheid. And, you know, I started that journey seven and a half years ago, the whole Paxful journey. And here I am, you know, 10 million users and a bootstrap successful startup. But, you know, I consider Paxful an experiment. And the experiment proved one thing, which is very important. It proved that Bitcoin could be useful for real use cases for the people that need it most. It was successful in that. It was, you know, seven, Eight years ago, I was saying, hey, Africa's going to lead Bitcoin adoption. And I was saying that because I actually went over there. I went back to the motherland. I went to Nigeria. I went to, to talk and meet the people there and really listen to them. And I saw the problems that they had. And I said, wow, these people have a lot of issues with their banking system. Even if they have banks, they can barely send money outside of the country. Meaning the sending money to the country next door is a nightmare. You're better off getting on a bus with a suitcase full of cash, let alone sending money outside of the country. So these people were trapped, literally, in the economy they were in. And that's why I, you know, I figured out how to get to them. You know, I figured out what they really needed. I respected them as people. And Paxful is built onto that. Because people ask me, how did you guys have success in Africa when you know, none of these multi-billion dollar companies can do it? Even out there, African companies can't do it. There's two main reasons. One, boots on the ground, right? We have to actually go there, meet the people, give them that respect. And two, I actually care about them. All these companies, people, all these other CEOs, they call me up and they're like, hey man, we want to get more, you know, penetration in Africa. We want to dominate our space there. And I'm like, well... They're profit-seeking. They're profit-seeking and they're using words like penetration, domination. It's not, you know, BDSM or, you know, <laughs> it sounds... Sounds quite frankly a bit disturbing. It was like you got the wrong mindset about it. You got yeah. to be there to be with the people and first. You know, see what their issues are, yep. and then you can help them. It sounds like simple advice, but you'd be surprised how few people take it. So that's the reason I'm here because I'm willing to go where others are not. I'm willing to do what others are not. And the business has been incredibly successful. I mean, Time Magazine named Paxful one of the hundred most influential companies in 2022. And the thing that struck me reading a bit of your Twitter and actually your quote, I think, in the Time magazine piece said, Bitcoin can bridge economies and expand opportunities for the billions of unbanked, which is, I think, actually almost a novel concept in, in Bitcoin today among the proponents that it can actually be used for commerce. I think everyone is is sort of fallen away from that belief and is maybe looking at stable coins or some other technology layer. They've kind of moved on from Bitcoin as even being applicable in that space. But you you seem to still be a believer there. Oh, absolutely. And Nigeria is the best example. It's the country, the world that leads Bitcoin adoption, all cryptocurrency, actually. And people ask me, what's going on in Nigeria? Are they just buying shit coins or what? The answer is no. The Nigerians are actually using it for real commerce. Nigeria is a financial prison, right? Like you can't get money out of the country. It's impossible. So how do merchants, you know, not just like, man, how, how does a merchant there even 
make a payment to buy some goods to sell in Africa. Like you can find all kinds of stuff on Alibaba, but how's a guy in Nigeria actually pay for it? You try going to your Nigerian bank and saying, yo, I want to do a wire to China or America to buy a used car or Europe or whatever. And they're like, all right, bro, fill out this form and we'll get back to you. They never hear from like he never hears from them again because it's only the government or billionaires that are allowed to access that hard currency, meaning dollars and euros, because you know the government wants to hold on for that for itself to buy, you know, guns from America, military supplies from Europe, medical supplies, whatever. The people don't get to access that. So they're trapped. Even if you have a bank account in Nigeria, you might have five bank accounts in Nigeria. Good luck trying to get that money out of the country. It's trapped there. And Africa doesn't really make too much now, unfortunately. So what goods are you going to sell? How do you do business? What's the day-to-day life like for your average Nigerian, whether they're a businessman, a student, whoever? It's free trade that allows people to create wealth. And that means you need to access outside of community. They don't have free trade. Free trade is impossible under economic apartheid. Not just because the government is incompetent or the banks suck or KYC is whatever. It's because, you know, even the governments are under these capital controls from the outside. And all true, the pain trickles down pretty damn hard through the people. Good doesn't trickle down, but pain certainly does. It's not a trickle. It's more like a pour, actually. And I learned all that by going there. So that's the wisdom I have to share here. I mean, I wish it, I, I keep talking about this because I, it's so important to drive this home because until you understand the pain people are in over there, like certain things we take for granted, they can't even imagine doing. They see no path to it at all and they just go about their lives. But once you understand that level of pain, you understand, okay, that's why these people are poor. That's why this country with all these natural resources isn't staggeringly wealthy was honestly considering these blockades it's a miracle they're not extinct and then you begin to see okay is there a way we can help these people jump across borders across this incompetence across this currency war that you know their prime ministers or presidents are fighting with some bankers in europe or america is there a way we can actually deliver them what they need and absolutely we have this magical thing called bitcoin which is peer-to-peer electronic cash It is powerful. It's not just, you know, a floating price against the dollar. It is a mechanism by which we can liberate these people. Correction, not us liberating them. They will liberate themselves. They don't need a handout. They just need to be shown this path. And I believed in that. I believed in that from the very beginning because the people there showed me. I was like, wow, I was... What really convinced me of the power of Bitcoin wasn't necessarily Bitcoin itself. Even the community within Bitcoin, like it wasn't technology. It's amazing, of course. The people in Bitcoin I met were amazing. They gave me the belief to go in there and be a part of the community. What really convinced me of the power of Bitcoin was the youth of Africa. And I have to give a special hand out to my brothers and sisters in Nigeria. Like their acumen, their hustle, their drives. Like, wow, if we just get some Bitcoin into their hands and show them how to use it for real instead of just holding on to it. And these people are going to do something amazing. Look what they've done. What they've done in Nigeria is unprecedented. Talk to me a little bit about that education piece, because I think that is not as well known. Paxful launched an initiative, I think, called Built With Bitcoins. Talk about what you've actually done to educate people, because getting into this space is still not easy. I think for the the average potential user out there, it's intimidating. Very much. And particularly in the peer-to-peer context, right? I mean, it's one thing to sign up for a centralized exchange and connect a bank account if you have one. It's an entirely different one, I think, the experience that you've been successful with on the Paxful platform. So I'd love to hear how you approach that and some of the success you've had. I mean, if you go to a centralized exchange like a Kraken or a Binance or Bitfinex, you know, you connect your bank account, send over these dollars. Okay, great. Now you can buy some Bitcoin. Okay, great. Now you can speculate. So that's basically the user journey. And it's, it's not that complex. Pretty simple, actually. 
Well, with peer-to-peer, it's, it's more difficult, but sometimes these people don't have a bank account to connect, to connect. And even if they do have a bank account, which actually most of our users actually do have bank accounts, the exchange has no access to those bank accounts, especially after Nigeria decided to forbid all their banks from doing any business with cryptocurrency exchanges. So you have to teach these people how to trade with another human, right, for something else, for something they can trade for the big. And that was extremely difficult because think about Nigeria. I was like, okay, I'm going to focus on these people because Nigerians are... I mean, they're some of the best, I think they're probably the best people on the planet. We had to get Bitcoin into that country first. And that was extremely great. Forget about educating people about it. The first biggest problem is how we get Bitcoin into this country when it's so hard to get money out. How are the Nigerians going to pay for the Bitcoin? I was giving away Bitcoin in the beginning. I gave away a thousand of my own Bitcoins like eight years ago just to show people how to hustle and trade it and, and use it. Some got it, but we still have to get a lot more Bitcoins in the country. So what I did was we created a hack and a trade route, a corridor between America, Nigeria, and China, where basically Nigerians would do work for Americans or whoever, and they'd say, pay me with a gift card code you can buy with cash from the drugstore. And then we showed how these, these Nigerian brothers and sisters, how they could trade that gift card with a gamer in China who had plenty of Bitcoin, super easy to get over there. But they wanted that gift card at like 30% off because they could play, you know, their games or access their movies outside of the firewall over there. And I was like, okay, this is a crazy fact, but maybe it'll work. Lo and behold, it did. We had like $60 million a week in volume. Started moving across that corridor to Nigeria and China, and it flooded Nigeria with Bitcoins. And from there, it flooded into the rest of Africa. Okay, so great. We got past the first leg of the mission. We got, with a hack, we got some Bitcoins into the space, made it fertile. But now we have to teach more people how to use this arbitrage marketplace, right? Like, how do they know the best guy to deal with? How do they know how to actually trade with him? with this escrow? Like, how does it work? How do we protect them from being socially engineered? How do we protect the other guy from getting a bad gift card? How, how do we show there's a lot of little rules here, you know, so we really had to invest in education and I couldn't scale just me there on Telegram and WhatsApp showing brothers and sisters how to do it. Not really a way to scale, so I needed to build an army to educate. And that's what we've done. We opened up a Pax Niger Center in Nigeria that actually brings people in and teaches them how to trade, teaches them what Bitcoin is really good for. We opened up another center, La Casa del Bitcoin, in uh, El Salvador. And also, Built with Bitcoin is um, it's a project I founded. I founded it five years ago. And my mission was to build 100 schools around the world. We're bootstrapped here at Paxville, so we, I could actually do that. If I told that you know to a VC and going to spend my money and company money to build schools and wells, they'd slap me. <laughs> But there you go. But because I had the impunity to act, I was able to do that. I helped build my first school after Hurricane Katrina with five nuns, and it left quite the impression on me. It was another crazy move that no one really believed in, but it won us the trust of the people and brought us some amazing talent that was truly mission-driven, not money-driven. So it turned out to be a beautiful thing. So, like, about education... It's a long-term investment, and you know it's it's a lot more than just building centers. Actually, sometimes you have to go to the people. So in 2019, we did these campus tours, eight universities across Africa, across uh, Kenya and South Africa. We're gonna do another one soon in Ghana and Nigeria. It was an amazing experience, uh, not just because. We had workshops and taught the people and gave away Bitcoin, but because the people taught me. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you what happened. It was super eye-opening. The first time I got on stage in South Africa, started talking about Bitcoin, and everyone was giving me this look, just like frozen. These were young people, right? I thought they'd be a little more happy and energetic. Why are people looking at me this way? Turns out, every single person you meet in Africa has either been scammed in something involving crypto or knows someone that has been scammed. When you say cryptocurrency in Africa, everyone thinks scammed. And that's because they've been getting the same narrative that the West has been giving. Hey, 
Check out this. It's all MLM scams. Oh, invest in my crypto mining. Oh, invest in my one coin. And everyone lost money. Everyone, everyone lost money. Like 99.9 to maybe, I don't know, 64 nines down the line, right? They all lost money. So I was like, okay. But guys, I understand you're in pain here. I understand you're skeptical. And you should be. They really should be. Because Africans, they're not the predators. They're the prey. They're the ones being preyed upon. And, and that includes Nigerians. You know, when people think about Nigerians, they think Prince is trying to scam them through email. But the Nigerians are actually the ones getting scammed, believe me. Like, I see a lot of things. They're the ones that suffer. So I told them, okay, forget about this as an investment. I'm not telling you here to put your life savings into this and just watch. I'm here to tell you how you can use this to start your own business. How it will make the process of moving money and receiving money so much easier. All those things you couldn't do before. All those things you couldn't imagine doing before that were patently unthinkable considering your situation, your father's situation, your rich friend's situation. I mean, they couldn't do it. Now you can. Because this magical internet money can help you jump across borders. I showed them how they could do remittance with it. I showed them how they could ask their diaspora uh, living outside of Africa, send me money with Bitcoin and watch. You can actually sell this Bitcoin for a bank transfer right in your country because it was actually, you know, a growing demand. And instead of paying 20% and losing all this money on FX, Western Union, etc., you'd make a profit. You'd actually make a profit. And like, what? I can make a profit? And once they said that and showed them how to do it, their eyes lit up. It's like, wow arbitrage that became the word and all these young hustlers just got up and started smashing absolutely smashing and i had people coming up to me you know when i came back several months later and like man i was unemployed now my brother and my sister and my three friends are working for me i've got a gift card business i'm doing drop shipping all this and i'm like wow it's beautiful those stories really like they make everything worth it that's incredible and and for people that haven't ever visited the Paxful site, I would encourage you to go and open an account. I, I did this earlier today, actually, in preparation for our interview. And unlike the experience on an exchange that I'm sure most of our listeners have probably uh, visited one of the big exchanges before, it's real people on the other side of the transaction from all over the world setting their own prices on exchange. This mechanism of goods for Bitcoin arbitrage is like happening in front of you. It's incredibly real. I was kind of amazed to see it because it's so different than what had been to this point my experience with crypto. I'm incredibly impressed. Question for you. You mentioned El Salvador. They've been in the news recently, I think, you know, primarily around the bet the government's made on Bitcoin and the price declines that have kind of moved against them a little bit there. But we haven't heard what's actually happening on the ground. Can you talk a little bit about that? Do you have a perspective probably different than the media that's been reported, I would guess? The El Salvador experiment is an amazing thing. And that's why, you know, when I first heard about it at Bitcoin 2020 in Miami, I took a plane to El Salvador that same day. So by you know, nightfall, I was in El Salvador and I was on El Zante. And I was introduced to, you know, uh, Michael Peterson, the granddaddy of Bitcoin Beach and all the gang down there. And I went straight to El Zante. Well, first I went with this caravan with some questionable fellows to meet the government. And I was like, okay, cool. I sat there in their nice reception hall and there were some amazing people there. But I just like, yeah, forget this. And I just bailed to El Zante, <laughs> went to the car and just drove myself down there. And I was like, oh, I'm going to give me a pupusa with lightning. Let's see if this is real. And I did. It worked. I was like, whoa, this is impressive. And I bummed around El Zante for an entire week. And I said, okay, we have to help support this experiment. This was a grassroots movement. It started in El Zante, it spread there, and then it infected, in a good way, this president. 
that's beautiful. Everything's great there. How Bitcoin was rolled out with the Chivo wallet, it happened in 30 days or 60 days or something. It's a crazy story. And, you know, it was rolled out in a way where the people really felt they didn't have a choice. They didn't really understand it. There wasn't enough education done. They felt it was a unilateral move by the president and there was resistance. There still is. So things are moving, you know, not as fast as they potentially could have moved. El Salvador is small, but the El Salvadorians are hustlers, right? So there's an interesting new trade route, I call it, where the government of El Salvador set up a website where people can actually put in their debit card number, just like you do on Amazon, and put in the Chivo ID of someone in the country. And it'll magically turn that credit card, it'll take money off their car, credit card, debit card, and send Bitcoin straight to someone's wallet. And now the El Salvadorian is like, wow, the government's a payment processor, and we can actually process visa and debit, and they're making profits of up to 20% right now, facilitating that from all over the world to using that to, to buy and sell Bitcoin. So, you know, it's the actual trading there has only just begun because a lot of the Salvadorians are still trying to figure out, okay, what do I need this for when we have US dollars? But now, because of what the government has done, people are actually able to make money with it. And people are hustling and moving, and that's really the start of the next level of things. So things are looking good for El Salvador. You mentioned something that I think is an important technology development in this push to actually make Bitcoin really useful for not just holding, but commerce is lightning. What's your perspective on lightning network adoption? Like, is it happening on the ground? Are people beginning to use it? Do they even need to know what lightning is, by the way? Maybe it's a technology that should recede into the background if we're aiming for simplicity on the, the user side, but curious your thoughts there. Lightning is, is a way to make Bitcoin cheaper and faster, which you could say, hey, it should have just been that way from the beginning. So do people really have to know about lightning? No, they don't really have to know about lightning. It just has to be something that is fast and cheap and works. We should have had it from the beginning. But on the ground, lightning usage, is it really growing? Nowhere near the levels that I would like it to. However, the Lightning ecosystem is growing like gangbusters. There, you know, you can go to Umbrella and see all these Lightning applications, and every single day I see new ones. It's absolutely exploding. So the developers are moving. We were one of the first to support Lightning. You know, I always wanted to see it move. But there's a lot more work to be done to get it onto the ground, right? To get it into the hands of people. And the approach is wrong. And it's not just Lightning, it's not just Bitcoin, it's the whole cryptocurrency approach is wrong. It, you know, the more I think about it, 14 years later almost, since Bitcoin was created, we're still trying to replace the banks with wallets. And it just bothers me, like, why are we on this legacy path while the telcos in Africa have jumped over everything by giving people full spectrum utility that they can use every single day and payments are just an extension of that. You know, no one talks about, hey, boy, why do you need to be about the technical part? Why do you need to be replacing the banks? Like the, the African telcos and Safaricom wasn't like, hey, try out M-Pesa, I can replace your bank. Like, no, hey, man, you can just attach value to a message just like attaching a Hello Kitty GIF and it freaking worked. Our approach has been wrong this entire time. So, you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I do see ahead of the game. And I do that because I'm on the ground, because I respect human intuition and respect humans. And I'm looking forward into the future about seven years. And I'm really asking myself the hard questions. And I challenge everyone listening, what is our definition of success? If you're on a mission, you have to ask yourself that question. What is the definition of success? What goal are you setting? To me, the definition, the measure of success is a billion citizens across the global south. And when I say citizens, it's not just a user. It's not just someone that gave you their email and verified their phone number or whatever. 
or even someone that uh, managed to upload their KYC and have it go through by some miracle. It's someone that uses your platform every single day. Someone that sees it add re real value to their lives and it's bringing real utility to their lives every single day. That's what a citizen is. Ultimately, our job here is we're, we're fixing broken civilizations. If civilization wasn't broken, we would have supplied everyone with their human right. Right to water, right to education, right to eat, right to store your wealth and property, and the right to financial services. These are human rights. Civilization should have provided them, but it hasn't. In fact, what has been masquerading as civilization has been working over time. There's no rest for the wicked to make sure people don't have those things, especially certain groups of people. And we've all suffered, whether we're in America, Europe, or whatever, but the Global South has suffered tremendously. You know, the Global South has 80% of the world's population, but less than 20% of its wealth. What's going on? It's upside down. Totally is, and the only way to fix it is to know the direction you're going into. So lightning is a wake-up call for us. It's a step in the right direction, but to really make it stick, we need to radically shift our entire way of doing things, and we all need to be aligned. And you know, it's it's pretty big thing to say because we're I'm still here struggling to get people to understand. Okay, forget about the West for a second. Let's focus on the global South and forget about the price of Bitcoin for a moment. Let's look at its purpose over price. That's the first mission. In these past seven eight years, we've done a tremendous amount to get there. We've had success. But now we need to bring them into a definition on top of that, right? So my job really as a CEO these past few years has been to change the narrative, get the best and brightest minds on this. And, you know, that's not the only realization I've had. I've had other realizations as well, namely that an American company can't serve the 100%. It really can. I've been met two senators the past few months, and I'm hoping to meet a lot more. And there's some amazing people working on some great regulation in the United States. But the truth is, it's going to be at least three, four, maybe five years before we see anything that is even workable. In fact, I've heard of there have been cases where peer-to-peer -peer traders have been arrested in the United States for nothing. Like people are going after them, or the, especially the local Bitcoin traders, some factual traders as well. I'm saying that bluntly. Like it seems like. An American company can't even serve America at this point. We all need to make some really hard decisions and calls, and we need to really join forces instead of focusing on this infighting and bickering. And we need to stop caring so much about the damn price. We need to start going to where others aren't. I love that message. It's, it's a unique one, at least for my media consumption and across the crypto ecosystem. It's a good direction for the community to embrace. I'm curious, maybe we can use this as our closing question. You touched on American policy and regulation. When you look across the developing world, particularly the African continent, where is the state of regulation there? Is it is it friendly to your mission? Is it against us? I know that the CBN came out and appeared to kind of ban banks in Nigeria from interacting with cryptocurrency. What's your take there? Is, is there a better direction to be done on the policy front on that continent? Like the way I approach most things, I don't really think about it too much. I just kind of take action. So, you know, I went over to Nigeria with my team and we met the, you know, the SEC of Nigeria and the vice president's people and they were like, hey, What's up? You're the first people that ever came to talk to us. <laughs> they were really happy about that. I was like, okay, great. Everyone's very friendly. And in fact, on Monday, I'm going to be going to Nigeria again to speak at a conference and meet all the governments, a government conference, actually. So there's a lot of work to be done there, but people are willing to talk. They're receptive. But a lot of the people in the government realize that the situation they have now is not sustainable, that all this is actually happening, no wonder about, and will continue to happen. In fact, when the ban was imposed, 
by the CBN, Central Bank of Nigeria. Peer-to-peer volumes rose by 20%, and they continue to rise. There's there's no stopping the Nigerian youth. Even the NSARs, I mean, like Nigerian youth were being arrested, shaken down for their Bitcoin, harassed and terrorized by the cops, but they still kept going. I'm telling you, you can't stop the Nigerians. You just go. So there is a lot of work to be done, but we have to, again, respect the ground that we're on. Meaning, if we look at Nigeria and be like, oh man, we can't do anything here, man. These people are corrupt. And we, we just only want to deal with the government. I mean, that's the wrong perspective. We're, again, imposing a Western perspective. You could say the West is more corrupt, but we just do it in different ways. Everyone there just wants to eat at the table. They want to wet their beaks a little bit. Okay, okay we'll, we can find a way to work with that, as long as they let the money flow. Because if you think about it, even the governments of those countries, they're also victims. Of course, the guys at the very top, they've got their bank accounts in Paris and London and New York. And that's why they're beholden to those powers and not their people. But a lot of them would actually love to help their people in their country. But they're under extreme pressures. So is there a way we can actually work together to meet in the middle, to have a net gain here so that everyone gets rich? And there absolutely is. There absolutely is. No matter how much corruption is there, believe me, if you sit down and you talk with people and you just understand where they're coming from, there's a lot more people that do care and they're just looking for an answer that could possibly satisfy the guy sitting to the left and to the right. And we're willing to do that. In many ways, I think the global south is the regulators and the government are far more reasonable than people in the West, which is unfortunate, but we see it all the time, right? But in the global south, it's not like that. They just want to see, hey, how can we keep control? We want to keep control because we want to, you know, we don't want to be disenfranchised here. We want what's coming to keep coming. And we would like a little bit more. Okay, maybe we can work with that. It seems like a reasonable perspective and a good place to be. I imagine people listening are wondering, they're probably reflecting on your mission focus and saying, hey, I'm into this. What would you recommend if people want to get involved, help, participate? Where do they get started? Well, first, follow me. I'm Ray Paxful on you know Instagram, Twitter, Telegram as well if you want to reach out. I always make myself available. I want to bring the best people to this battle because that's what we need. You know, I'm one of the good guys. I really am. I'm not perfect. I made a lot of mistakes, believe me. Uh, I always keep to myself sometimes as CEOs often do. It's our job. But, you know, follow me. Reach out. There's a lot that's happening. Built with Bitcoin, we'll soon be opening the stores and allowing volunteers to come in and help with things. If you want to help me build a well on a school, you know, dig a ditch, you can do that too. So manual work feels good. But there's a lot more work that's going to be opening up. And talking about expanding things to a whole new level. You know, these next seven years, I want to bring in a billion citizens. I want to unite the entire global south, really as one nation. Because if you're providing people communications, store of value, and payments. That includes remittances and all those things, essentially financial services and human rights. That's a trifecta of civilization right there. If you start providing water and electricity and data, then that's it. It all comes together. And that's actually what we have to do. We have to do it all. It is really a nation-building exercise. And the nation that's been waiting for us is the entire global south. You want to help? Let's go. I'm right here. I'm here. Let's go. Let's go. Let's do it. I'm pumped up. I'm ready to go. We're going to get the links to all your handles and uh, Built With Bitcoin in the show notes. Ray, this has been tremendous. It's a great way to end my week. Thanks for joining me late your time. I appreciate it, buddy. Anytime, brother. It's been an honor. You're a great interviewer. Hey there. Thanks for listening to another episode of Public Key. The aftermath from the collapse of FTX has many in the industry wondering what more we can do to protect investors, customers, and institutions in the crypto market. 
Chainalysis is honored to join over 40 other crypto companies, including Solidus Labs, Coinbase Circle, the Chamber of Digital Commerce, and many others to form the Crypto Market Integrity Coalition, or CIMIC. Together, we'll promote market integrity in crypto and have established an academy that provides first-of-its-kind training by the crypto ecosystem for the crypto ecosystem. If you're interested, you can find a link in the show notes and enroll now.